This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is May 25th, 2023. I'm Stratalana Bohm. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, what we didn't learn about foreign interference in Canadian democracy. Uh, we'll talk about a little bit of stuff in BC first. Scott, welcome back. I hope you had a great trip. Thank you. And uh, yeah, shout out to the people who filled in in my absence. Uh, this was a good couple of discussions. Yeah, we had a couple of great interviews in there. And if you want to keep those kind of discussions going, patreon.com slash politicoast. Let's start here in BC. It's been a few weeks since we've talked in depth about BC politics, besides my great conversation with Jen St. Dennis last week about BC housing. The legislature wrapped up for the spring sitting. There are three bills of the government's remaining on the order paper. That's the Money Judgment Enforcement Act we talked about previously, the Motor Vehicle Amendment Act 2, that I don't remember what it does, uh, and the Environmental Management Amendment Act. This is a new bill put in in the last week. Um, the press release flags it as aiming to protect BC's natural environment. My read of it is uh, changing the liability and the onus on uh, orphan wells and decommissioning and closing operations. This has been a huge issue in Alberta and BC where oil companies kind of stop drilling for whatever reason. And then there's just like this toxic facility in the middle of the land that no one wants to take ownership of. In many cases, some of those companies go under and then you just have this uh, problem. Yeah, it seems kind of uh, absurd that there wasn't like already some requirement that, uh, hey, start one of these wells. You had like post a bond or something that would roughly cover the cost of cleanup. That, that, that would require some onus being put on the oil companies and uh, successive governments in many provinces have been seeking to do the opposite and to encourage investment rather than to like threaten them with future liability. Uh, so the two approaches we've kind of seen to address this, Alberta has just basically cut checks to deal with it and just paid for it out of public money. BC is taking be, be the, the province run by the fiscal conservatives. That was naturally yeah. their course of action. Yeah. Uh, and BC is making some obligations on companies to deal with it. They are doing the quote polluter pays principle. So, um, it'll be interesting to see this bill go forward and, you know, it's one I'm supportive of. I also thought it was really interesting. There are three new private members bills, and these obviously won't go anywhere, but these all come from BC United members. Uh, the first one, M223 from Todd Stone, is the Control of Foreign Funding and Electoral Influence Act. Uh, this will dovetail into our main discussion in a little bit on the Johnston Report, but Todd Stone wants to ban, well, foreign funding's already banned in BC, but this would make it a double electoral crime, I guess. Uh, but you would also not be able to have a foreign entity influence the election or do something like that. It's not defined exactly what conduct they're banning, but don't do not do it. That's the sort of thing that would get uh, hammered out in you know, uh, election BC regulations and 
you know, probably a court case or two. Yeah, the the bill as it's written feels a bit overbroad because the foreign influence one says an individual or organization must not engage in conduct on behalf of or in collaboration with a foreign principal or person if the conduct is directed, funded, or supervised in whole or part by a foreign principal and the intent is to uh, influence an election or a voter in BC. And like, I get what he's getting at there, and that seems like a reasonable thing to ban just if you end up having situations where like non-profits or even some corporate organizations are trying to engage in our democracy that happens right and it's not necessarily like clandestine foreign influence or interference that's well bad it's just part of democracy sometimes i mean from the language you just read it sounds like as long as there isn't like active work to coordinate that or money being uh, sent to help support that, it would be okay. So, you know, some NGO works with an NGO across the border in the States. Occasionally they send some money back and forth to support various things. Like that doesn't sound like it would automatically trigger this if come election time, the BC NGO is using its own funds and isn't talking to the other one about the BC issues. Uh, and how they're going to handle things during the election. Yeah, this would also ban false, misleading, or deceptive communications or practices, but only if they're directed by a foreign person. So you're still allowed to, under this framing, do election misinformation if you're a domestic party. I don't know why you wouldn't just ban all misinformation other than the practical difficulties of doing such a thing yeah i think the practicalities are the one that's actually governing there i mean it's also very difficult to ban foreign ones from doing it if we're being honest uh and we'll get into that in the johnston report i think um two other private members bills from the bc united uh 224 from dan davies in the peace region he wants to amend the transportation amendment act uh this would give police additional powers to remove vehicles in from highways that are obstructing traffic. Uh, a press release I saw on this talks about how an issue they're having, and he saw on the Alaska highway, is people are abandoning their cars, and then Why? they're just like, a, well, like a car breaks down, and you get a ride, and you just haven't like gotten around to calling a tow truck or something, and now this vehicle is on the side of the road or stuck in traffic and creating problems. Uh, this bill would also expand the definition of highway to include the ditches and pullouts for this purpose i think uh, it seems uncontroversial and like yeah if there's abandoned cars on the road someone should be able to do something yes yeah, yet another one of those bills we seem to talk about every week when or every other week when we're going through the latest stuff going through parliament and the ledge where you just kind of got to wonder why it already isn't the case that this is something that exists in legislation and finally, uh, Trevor Halford brought forward the Fraser Valley Transportation Services Act. This would be back-to-work legislation for the transit workers of the Fraser Valley buses that have been on strike for over two months. Uh, and it's kind of the story simmering back. There's a few hundred bus uh, employees. And I learned today they're, they're under contract with an American company who works for uh, BC – or is who, who is contracted by BC Transit. And so it's a messy situation there. 
the transit workers have taken the company to the labor board alleging they're not bargaining in good faith, but uh, Halford just thinks everyone needs to get back to work. Here's the back to work bill. I don't think that one's going anywhere with this government, though. Probably not. I mean, it's a private member's bill. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> no matter what government was in power. Of, but of they these seem three, less that has the least. Yeah. Of these three, that has the least chance of going anywhere. Uh, on the news front, because we're now in the quiet season for the next few months of the BC legislature, but there's still announcements being happened. Just today, actually, the province announced that they are going to make e-bikes more affordable. They're overhauling the rebate system they have for e-bikes. Yeah, so in this case, they're getting rid of the current Strap-It program, which basically involves the car trading, and are now going to a means-tested rebate starting on June 1st. Yeah, so everyone will be able to get an e-bike for $350 off. If you are making, I think it's under about $50,000 net income, you'll get about 1000 and it increases to $1,400. Um, so this is really trying to target uh, low-income people in particular to get them on e-bikes. But broadly, you know, a universal $350 credit is a pretty good incentive for e-bikes overall. Yeah, the the whole means testing thing doesn't make a huge amount of sense to me here. So, like, you can see the argument for means testing when it comes to, hey, we're running this rebate, tax credit, whatever program, because there's some distributional effect we want to counteract, and we want to tilt things more heavily towards lower income people. But is that really the point of an e-bike rebate? Like, fundamentally, what the end goal is here is to support the province's clean BC plan. And that's about shifting everyone's uh, consumption and carbon outputs and all of that. And at that point, why means test it? The main point here is just to get people off of their cars and substitute at least some of those trips for e-bikes. And it doesn't, change that just because someone has a little more money and if anything you know the richer someone is the more likely they are to make their marginal trip in a car compared to another method of transportation so you think if anything we'd want to have greater incentives for people in that bracket or at least not reduced i think it's a just a question of perceived fairness like subsidizing rich people is going to be unpopular among a certain you know base of the NDP and so going about it this way where you say all right everyone gets $350 off but we'll also like triply incentivize it for uh, some segments or even more than that what is that four times as much the EV the EV rebates work the same they actually changed them where it used to be every EV that cost under $45,000 would get a few thousand dollars off from the province and now they have uh, shifted that to be more means tested to really try to make sure that the focus is on driving the change among those who can least afford it which i'm not necessarily convinced makes sense from a policy point of view because uh individual carbon outputs correlated with household income so if anything you think you'd want to not cut down on your incentives for the 
people who statistically have the higher per person outputs of carbon. And not only that, because they also have more money and are more financially comfortable. The incentive effect is on like a dollar by dollar basis, probably like slightly reduced for them. So reducing it even more doesn't really make a huge amount of sense to me. I mean, if this was the only policy on carbon emissions, I think that would make sense. But we do have a carbon tax that will hit those who consume and use more carbon harder. Uh, and we have other programs. So this, like, if I look at myself and my carbon emissions, it's going to be relatively higher by the fact I live in a single family home in the suburbs now. Uh, and like, you know, my emissions aren't necessarily tied to the fact we have a car. I mean, we have an EV now, but like getting us to an e-bike will definitely help, but it's the size of our house and what it's powered by. We've changed that to a heat pump. So that helps get off some of the gas and things like that. So I'm not convinced that like the e-bike is going to be the thing that saves the planet. It's a good thing. We need more of them. And getting people out of cars is definitely a part of the solution. But I don't think anyone's arguing this is the thing that saves the planet. It's more like if you're at, if you're trying to structure a program to focus on cutting the most emissions for every dollar spent, is this how you would do it? Oh, but it's doing multiple things. It's doing that, but it's also not giving subsidies to rich people because fuck them. And that's a core NDP value, Scott. You just have to accept that fuck the rich has to be in there too, if it can be. I don't know. And this like, like, like cutting carbon emissions should maybe take precedence over that sort of class warfare. Uh, speaking of class warfare, one of the old stalwarts of the battles, Harry Lally, is no longer on the orange team. Uh, you didn't know this name, did you, Scott? Or you'd forgotten it? I'd forgotten it. It's So, Harry Lally is a former member of the BC legislature representing Fraser Nicola from, oh, when was he in office? 1980. He was in office from 1998 until 2013. He was the Minister of Transportation and Highways under Glenn Clark, Dan Miller, and Ujol de Singe. Then he was in opposition. He went to a couple, like he was always in the Fraser Valley. Some At one point, he was the member for Yale Lillooet. Um, he considered running for the, I think it was the 2011 leadership race of the NDP, but he dropped out because he couldn't find the funds to mount a serious campaign. Uh, internal NDP politics started happening, and he faced a nomination battle for his own seat, where he eventually won it, but then he lost a rematch, and it was just a mess. Uh Dippers hate him at this point, and so there's no love lost, and it's not really, um, yeah, no one, no one's that sad on the orange team that he's over with BC United. There was a headline a few years ago where he gave a speech that he's like, "We need to make sure that like old white men feel welcome in the BC NDP," because he was critical of the uh, equity mandate within the party. So he's got some energy. Was that just because he couldn't pull a Nathan Collin? Well, Harry Lolly um, is a member of the South Asian community, right? He's not a white man. He just wanted to stand up for them. 
interesting guy. Um, I don't think it's going to change anything, but it was kind of notable for longtime watchers of BC politics, at least, and the legislature. With that, let's jump to the big news of this week. David Johnston, the special rapporteur on foreign interference in Canadian democracy, has released his first report. Uh, it's out. Yeah, so this came out uh, Tuesday, and I think going into this, there was pretty much universal uh, agreement on what the likely outcome of it was. That's not what we got. Uh, I think, no, we ran a poll in our Slack that said, is he going to recommend a public inquiry or not, or some other middle road that disappoints everyone? And we got the disappointing result we wanted, Scott. Yeah, I, I think that just means our patrons are probably more cynical than the average pundit, which in a way is kind of impressive. Maybe not in a good way, but in a way. <laughs> so yeah, this report... It's, you know, under 30,000 words. It's 59 pages on the PDF. I did have the chance to read through most of it earlier today. I skimmed a couple parts because it got pretty boring. Uh, the The ultimate bit is that, like, you don't learn much reading through it because all the stuff he needed to look at was classified. <laughs> and so... He has a secondary report that if you get top secret uh, security clearance, you can ask to go read it, particularly if your name is Pierre Polyev or Jagmeet Singh. Um, well, it's it's an annex to the report. Uh, we should mention kind of the top line recommendation here, which I think we kind of alluded over uh, and merely referenced. Uh, so his recommendation is no public inquiry, but that he is going to continue his work and over the coming months hold a bunch of public hearings on the matter and write another report in October about this. Yeah, so I had when he was appointed, I had missed that his mandate was technically until October anyway, and he was just expected to deliver a first report. Yeah, that had the week. recommendations on kind of what yeah. to do. Yeah. And so I kind of when I first saw the news, I was like, oh, he's just trying to make more work for himself. But he's already like com contracted to do something for the next few months. And he's like, I'm going to do a mock public inquiry, but public inquiry in this situation won't work because it can't really be public or full because of all the classified stuff. But, but also, like, come back, none of the let's, let's circle back to that. Well, I'll just also, before yeah. we do that, add that like his things not going to have the powers of a public inquiry to compel testimony or and we don't know if there's going to be say lawyers there or cross-examining witnesses or anything it's very much kind of the like discount knockoff version of it and i don't think anyone was asking for like a discount public inquiry run by the guy who has basically had his impartial uh questions raised for the last two months over his perceived lack of impartiality on this well let's come back to all of that because there's at least two good threads there but the other main findings here are he says foreign governments are undoubtedly attempting to influence candidates and voters in canada uh he says the prc particularly among them 
Yeah. Uh, he says in full context of the relevant intelligence, though, uh, many of the things reported in the media have been misconstrued probably because of the lack of context. So he basically is dumping cold water either a little bit or just a lot on all of the major stories that have come out from global and uh, the Globe and Mail over the past few months. Though, that's when you get into those and actually like read the the sections, it's a little less clear. So like the um, money that was allegedly going to be going to various uh, was it the eleven candidates in one of the past elections? Like, there's intelligence that the PRC intended to do that, but like nobody's quite sure if they did and there's like not a lot of data kind of one way or the other about what actually ended up happening there so like a lot of these are like yeah there's some stuff that pointed there we don't quite have the enough of a picture to really say kind of what happened so maybe the like things went a little maybe the reporting had a little more certainty than is necessarily backed up by the full picture of the reports but uh, that he was much more definitive on the allegations against Han Dong, which he calls false. Yeah, that was like the only as... one that was like unequivocal in there. Yeah, we still don't actually know yeah. the content of it. Uh, the one thing that was confirmed on that story was that there was a conversation related to the Michaels, but the allegation of the recommendation that Han Dong allegedly made was pretty unequivocally said no that didn't happen yeah so good news for mr dong and his ongoing libel lawsuit against global news and his hopes to get back into the liberal caucus although which he says he wants to do and trudeau says he welcomes that conversation when he's sure he's cleared his name it was it was very like yeah we'll have you back when we're ready to have you back I saw a different story point out the liberals have like had over the past seven or eight years since they've come to power, like over, I think it's over 20 MPs leave caucus for various different reasons, minor scandals and things like that. And none have come back to caucus. Uh, finally, in terms of the conclusions, um, the, the fun one, the piece de resistance that we'll have to just like, zero in on the like is it's there just a fun that, one in here like none of this struck me. yeah it's that our government doesn't work at all <laughs> so what you're telling me is canada is broken uh yes <laughs> at least uh ministers apparently don't check their email their top secret email and CSIS tends to uh not direct their correspondence to anyone in particular. Yeah. So uh I'm gonna recommend the piece uh Matt Gurney wrote uh for the line where he kind of digs through a lot of this stuff. Uh we'll link in the show notes on that. Uh but like yeah, the picture this paints of how the government actually works is depressing, damning, like th there's a whole bunch of adjectives one could throw out on this. None of them good on that. So as you alluded to, kind of one of the big ones was that uh, relate, specifically related to the intelligence around the attempts to gather information on Michael Chong's family and potential threats that would stem from that. Uh, there was a report put together, and that was and the intelligence was sent over to 
the then public safety minister, Bill Blair. Uh, turns out that didn't get read because Bill Blair didn't have access to the top secret email system that that intelligence was sent along with. Um, and just for context, this was in May of 2021. He was appointed to the position in November of 2019. So year and a half into the job, doesn't have his email working. I mean, who was it? Mike DeYoung never answered his email. He doesn't do email, despite being an, a cabinet minister for quite a while in the province of BC. So, Yeah, I kind of feel like public safety minister should have the pipeline for the... <laughs> and also, I'm pretty sure Bill Blair does email. It's just he didn't do that email because no one gave him the password. I mean, at some point, it's incumbent upon the minister to be responsible for making sure he's getting the information from the agencies that he is, in fact, responsible for. Like, this wasn't some, like, I'll, CC that got, like, left off and, like, oh, someone got missed on it, which we'll talk about that in a bit uh, on how some of the other stuff's distributed. But um, like, this is the, basically the minister in charge of CSIS wasn't on the email system CSIS uses to send information to the minister. Like, that is unbelievable if someone yeah pitched it's that a failure on both sides right it's a failure of CSIS to ensure their documents are being read and it's a failure of the minister to ensure he has the documents he should be reading yeah like nobody comes out here looking good i mean ultimately in a system of responsible government the the butt stops at the the ministers and first minister on all of this stuff so like the fact that the organization they oversee wasn't working very well is also kind of their problem anyway i, I ultimately think, yeah, yeah the the report so the, is terrible with respect to that but like i don't know i found how it was written like weirdly cuts the political level a whole lot of slack for how things are running in the various parts of the government they oversee i i wonder if david johnston is just such like a underspoken type of person because like nothing in this that should be bombshells is written like a bombshell it's just like oh yeah and then no one read that thing well i mean he throws oh, well. a fair bit of shade and as some for for what is a you know government report by a former governor general some fairly stern words for um like opposition parties and the media on this i don't know We'll talk about the perceptions stuff in a bit, but like it was a weird disconnect I found there. Fair. Uh, I want to quote part of this on communication breakdowns because it really, I think, illuminates what a mess this is. Uh, so just this is just what I copied and to our DMs as I was reading it because I was like, this is hilarious in a bad way. It is worthwhile to describe what I have observed about how information and intelligence is distributed and responded to within government. CSIS and CSE, the communication security... Establishment. There are establishment. They are the signals intelligence agency. Uh, and The internet spies. Basically our version of the NSA, uh, and they report through yeah. D&D, Department of National Defense. So CSIS and... CSIS and CSE write intelligence reports and intelligence analysis. As explained above, these reports are often addressed to, to departments, not individuals. The reports may say PCO, GAC, PS, ND, 
on them, meaning they will go to Privy Council Office, Global Affairs Canada, Department of Public Safety, and Department of National Defense. However, it is rare for specific names to be mentioned, so specifically who at those departments received these memos cannot be determined from documentary sources. After conducting numerous interviews, the picture remains cloudy. The materials are disseminated, but no one keeps track of who specifically received or read them. This means there can be intelligence that is, quote-unquote, sent to various consumers, but it does not always get actually consumed. Yeah, so this is kind of crazy. Like, basically, this is the equivalent of top-secret information being sent to info at top-secret.publicsafety.gc.ca. And everyone who's ever had to deal with an info at account knows how well that works. It sometimes CSIS does make sure, the spies do make sure that there is someone in the room and they can brief them in person. Uh, quote again, uh, staff at the PMO, Prime Minister's Office, speak of being given a large binder in a secure room with an agency client relations officer present. A short time to review it with no context or prioritization of the material and no ability to take notes for security reasons. The binder may have a significant mix of topics from around the world and no one says, you should pay attention to this issue in particular. If staffers are away, they may not see the binder that day. Yeah, so like, member of parliament being targeted by a foreign country may be stuck like right beside Kremlin gets new toilet paper in the binder and like nobody's highlighting any of that and not only that but like the no notes are like not able to basically take any of this material like with them and like kept in a secure area and like handed like proper like sensitive material should like out of the briefing is also a little baffling when you think about it like this material is in theory being sent there because these people need to know and use that information for their jobs and the fact that it basically has to go off memory of some staffer is nuts. Yeah, and like we know people who are involved in public policy work in the political and on the civil service side. And like a lot of what they do requires them to sit and like engage with material for significant lengths of time so that they can understand something that's not their field, but then translate it into the ministry they work for or into policy advice and kind of just being given a block of text with just like oh here's here's some stuff about today for like i don't know 20 minutes 30 minutes and then you like go about your day we're like cool um thanks not helpful to anyone no especially because like the following sentence says if staffers are away they may not see the binder for that day like just oh someone has a cold and is not coming into work today so you know i guess uh you know north korea's latest missile test isn't going to get uh, reported to the pmo or like a direct threat i guess some of the higher level stuff they would well, it's I don't even know what's working and what's not, but like they do Apparently do nothing. some direct interviews, but yeah, and that's kind of what we're left at. So, like later on in the report, as we mentioned, it gets into specific allegations, but we're not given any evidence on them. It's just like I reviewed the evidence; this allegation is false, or I can say that something happened, but it wasn't what they said in the Globe and Mail. That's like. It's a deeply unsatisfying read for that part. Yeah, there's a lot of like, oh, we spoke to the prime minister or we spoke to minister, so-and-so minister. 
And there's no sign they knew about this. Which is, like, not good. It clearly means something has been broken here on this. Like, the, the end result of all of this is basically the best case scenario is the government was too incompetent to be malicious with this. I mean, one of the other things that's flagged in here is that the uh, government has a position of uh, the NSIA, which is the National Security and Intelligence Advisor. Uh, there have been five people, uh, one long-term, or there have been five permanent NSIAs, one long-term acting NSIA, and one interim one during Trudeau's tenure which is seven people doing one senior-level job in eight years. Well, seven and a half, actually, I guess, at this point. So, like, yeah, yeah. we basically had one a year. Which is not good. And, like, he identifies that some of this is just related to, you know, old-age retirement because it's a senior-level position, so you probably don't get there until you're a bit older. But you want – it's the kind of position you want some experience so, what in. Yeah, the, the American equivalent to this is the NSA, the National Security Advisor. They have a lot of re redundant acronyms, which is its own thing. Anyway, the National Security Advisor in the U.S. That, that's like the National Security Point person who like deals with all the stuff and reports the president on it. You know, it's pretty common for that person to stick around for at least most of a presidential term. It can vary a bit, but, you know, it's hardly the case where you see like every other week there's a new person in that office. And this is not something that just because it's a senior post means that there needs to be a lot of turnover on. No. Uh, so, yeah, that creates other issues. The Like the other issue that arises in here, and I think this came out in some of the broader commentary, is just the like timeline for getting this out ended up being a bit of a mess. And this is where... Uh, Aaron O'Toole and Pierre Polyev had sharp criticisms both as the report was being written and after of like O'Toole did speak to uh, Johnston like the week before it was published and uh, Pierre Polyev yeah, uh, refused an invitation. Yeah, so Aaron O'Toole spoke to him, I believe it was on the 17th which was a week ago yesterday. The report dropped on Tuesday um, and in Aaron O'Toole's telling of it, which we'll link to his uh, Substat post where he goes into all of this in our show notes, uh, he said like halfway through his meeting with them, he was told the report was already off with the translators to be translated into French. Like it was done by the time they talked to him. And this is the leader who was the person who was leading the party that is in theory the one that suffered the most from the results of the foreign interference. Uh, he was leader at that time, and nobody bothered to speak with him before the reporting was done, and it really feels like a box-checking exercise more than a, a serious attempt to do it. Like Of the two conservative leaders to talk to, yeah, Pierre Polyev has the job now, but the one that's like most relevant for all of this is... The person who had the job in 2021 when the bulk of the interference was alleged to have happened and to not speak with him before the report is written and off at the translators 
suggest that uh, the amount of diligence that was done on this thing is not uh, necessarily reaches the level of you know, due diligence for something of this nature. So I'm willing to give Johnston a little bit of the benefit of the doubt because a lot of this report is very high level, just like stage setting stuff. It's like, what is foreign interference? And nothing Aaron O'Toole is going to say is going to change what the definitions are in the first like third of this report or some of the stuff in the last third about like what actions has Trudeau taken recently. So I can see sending big chunks off for initial translations because the timeline was too tight. Now, Johnston dug his own hole because he didn't get these interviews lined up until quite late. Now, like the whole thing is a very rushed process in many ways. And it seems like he wanted to focus on document collection and analysis before he spoke to anyone. So, so like I could see the benefit of doing that. It's a mess. But like also, it's important to kind of know where to look. And it may be the case that there is something that hasn't been reported through the media that someone who was working on the ground or involved in these campaigns, you know, has something that would be relevant to this that could then help steer kind of the where we should be looking stuff. And yeah, I, I don't want to like look over some of the stuff before you start talking to the various stakeholders and people on there. Cause you know, you want to be able to scope your questions and your interview based off kind of what the information you have, you're going to have access to is going to say, but, but to wait until the thing's done just strikes me as a very bad process that isn't that potentially leaves useful information out or doesn't collect it until it is well past the point where it should be useful yeah on the other angle of it uh pierre polyev was approached uh in early april i believe it was uh and he responded (laughs) They acknowledged receipt of the letter, and he responded publicly in a letter released on Twitter on April 12th, and then to my team on April 13th. I think we talked about that It was not responsible to our request, which is like, that's an amazingly bitter piece of like, you could have emailed us before you posted this like bitch slap on Twitter. Um, And then they kind of go back and through. Giving it more credit than it really deserves. (laughs) It was a bad letter. Uh, But it's like, yeah, Polyev like purposefully didn't engage with it like he wasn't given a ton of opportunities in here but like if he if polyev was committed to speaking to being a part of this he would have like jugmeet singh and Francois blanchett were and aaron o'toole and so it's kind of a mess of like the conservatives and i get the strategy here are like wanting to just undermine this in their own way both by talking about the potential conflict um, for Johnston in his former positions with the Trudeau Foundation again and again and again, and then also being like, and we didn't even take part in this. Um, But yeah. Yeah, which honestly just like goes to show what a mistake it was putting Johnston in here where you like hand that ammunition over. They, I'm just, I just have it open right now. I see they also spoke to Kevin Vuong, on May 18th, and heard his perspective on Oh, yeah, there was something else. This is. I, I can't not recall the details now, but there was one of the reportings. Yeah, he had a Globe and Mail report about how he thinks there was uh, interference, and that's why he's no longer in the Liberal Party of Canada. 
um, because apparently China knew that he was going to run decades ago, or you know a decade ago when he is alleged to have done some bad things, which led to I think it was charges of sexual assault that were dropped against him, which is why he was dropped during the election. And he's like, it was China that told them during the election that I had this convict or you know these dropped charges, and he offered no proof. And it was a very weird interview. And follow-up interviews, he just like kept redirecting. And so I think he is a sad, strange little man that uh, I wish his interview was public because that would have been amusing to listen to. That That's the downside of this not being a fully public inter- inquiry to this point is we don't have transcripts of any of these interviews. And I get many of them dealt with secret and top secret information, so it couldn't have been. But... I feel like there's still Maybe could have been a little more said. Like a lot of these basically boil down to you know, trust me, there's not not much here, but like without even kind of really explaining what the not here stuff was, like you can only go into it so much, but yeah, still felt a little vague, even counting for the classified nature of a lot of the stuff. Well, as I mentioned, the leaders of the opposition are afforded the opportunity to well, at least the NDP Block and uh, conservatives, the Greens have not, I guess they're not an official party in parliament. The leaders of the real opposition parties have been offered the opportunity to get top secret security clearance to read this re- annex to this report. Jugmeet Singh is interested in it. Blanchette and Polyev have said, we're not doing that because you can't silence us. Because if they get top secret inf- clearance, they won't be able to talk about any of the uh, top secret information they read about in that subsequent part. I mean, I do kind of get the objection, but like, okay, Polyev's a bit histrionic or, or, um, you know, turns it up to like 12 when it really shouldn't be, uh, which is, you know, his style and it's annoying for that. Um, but you know, they are opposition leaders. Like their, their job is to, in public, hold the government accountable. And like, I can at least see the steel man case for why they'd be hesitant to sign on to anything that limits their ability to do that to one degree or another. I mean, I still think they're going about it in a stupid way, but that seems to be the, the spirit of the times. Yeah. Like at a surface level, I get the argument, but at the next level, like if you want to be prime minister, you should at some point act like it, and be under the understanding that some of the information that's going to cross your desk cannot be made public. That doesn't mean you can't react to it as Johnston did here, right? That's my read on it. It's like they could read Johnston's extra report and then just be like, and we disagree with his findings because we saw information in there without saying what it is. Uh, But they don't want, they want to play games on this. Yeah, I think that's probably a fair read. And that's not what we need if we're trying to get to the bottom of what happened, who did what, uh, and who responded appropriately or not. Because this report says they didn't. The liberals didn't like knowingly do anything bad or didn't ignore any advice that they were at least given and read. The the tiny amount of the stuff that actually made it in front of them. I I, I keep going back to just like how unbelievable it is that a that none of like the internal systems work at all. 
I mean, to, to call this like an episode of Veep would be to undersell how ridiculous it was. Like, if this had been pitched in the writer's room there, it would have gotten laughed out and shot down immediately for being too unrealistic. So I, I don't know. I take a different view. I think, like, systems failures are common in every organization and government, and it's not necessarily the big ones that get you. And there are some big ones identified here, but I think... This is more like a lot of stuff falling through cracks because the system is cracked, right? And so a lot of stuff is likely getting through and is being acted upon, but or is just, you know, FYI kind of information that you can't act upon because Johnston, you know, another part of the report that didn't need uh, input from Aaron O'Toole is the section that goes on like the challenge of uh intelligence information versus like evidence that can be used in a court of law <laughs> like intelligent security intelligence is often just like hearsay and stuff like that that they're trying to work off of to get a better sense of what's happening if we actually wanted to act on some of it we would need more corroboration and direct evidence now the security establishment has some tools they can act with but you know you can't arrest someone on hearsay um so some information is undoubtedly getting to the prime minister's office in the appropriate channels, but it's just like I mean, the, like the whole system just a system that needs an overhaul. Yeah, and at year seven and a half, like it really, I mean, the buck has to stop with the public safety minister, either the then public safety minister or the current run, the prime minister, like. That's the thing. Well, it's that not even I've... clear when the problem started, right? One of the things that's flagged in here is like the decentralization has become an issue, where you have like CSE and CSIS and probably RCMP at times and the political side not talking to each other enough because they're all in their little silos doing their own little things, and so he calls for a more centralized approach, which there's merit to in terms of making sure stuff goes through, but then there's also civil liberties concerns and there's reason things were broken up in the past. Yeah. Although like that, I mean, that was one of like the big um, recommendations and big changes the U S made after uh, the nine 11 commission is that Intel, a lot of the stuff wasn't going through their systems because the uh, relevant agencies weren't talking to each other. And unlike you know, the two we have, I think there's something like a total of 19 intelligence agencies within the U.S. government. Uh, I mean, so, some of them are pretty niche, but uh, like there are countries that have faced the problem of how do we have a bunch of intelligence services and take the information they produce and send it up to the political level in a somewhat reasonable manner that conveys like the key stuff they need to know and you know, no system's perfect, but, you know, it's a, generally a problem that is a lot closer to being solved in a whole bunch of pure countries that, you know, if we'd actually just bothered to do the work, we probably could have done uh, and copy that. And that's kind of the problem here is that nobody really seemed to care enough to do the work on this in any way. And the unfortunate thing is, like, I get the feeling nobody's really going to be held accountable for this. Like, this is, you know, the public safety minister not having access to the email system that sends him uh, classified intelligence materials 
is crazy. And like, if that was any other person in any other job, like they would be fired at this point for it. And yeah, that's not likely to happen because apparently responsible government or ministers actually get fired or resigned. It's a thing of the past. Yeah, get with the time, Scott. Uh, there is a section in this report that does highlight a number of initiatives that have been uh, taken on foreign election appearance, and a lot of them uh, are very contemporary. There's, you know, in March, as of March 2023, there's been a, a number of different things announced, largely in response to the media stories around this, and it finally becoming a political issue that needs to be dealt with. And so, you know, there, I can see reasons for optimism in terms of dealing with this and you know as long as we could get an nsia who can keep the job for more than uh, 11 months and get a few of the other parts working well it's not you know implausible that we can muddy our way to a a better future on these things where things work where people read the emails they're supposed to be reading and so forth Let's let's pivot though, and let's talk about the next steps because he has ruled out the public inquiry, kind of flagging it on the basis that the process he has undertaken largely mimics what a public inquiry would have to do. Because any public inquiry on this would have to do a lot in camera, which is would be somewhat, but not completely unprecedented. And that would be deep, similarly deeply unsatisfying. And whoever that commissioner was would just be looking at the same documents and talking to the same uh, security officials as so, him. Th there's a few threads I want to pull on there. I mean, first, this is not the first time there's been an issue that's come up that involves uh, security services, classified materials and whatnot. And we have had public inquiries on those. Uh, the one that I think everyone's been pointing to uh, recently was the uh, O'Connor inquiry uh, related to uh, the detention and torture of uh, Mahara Rar uh, back in like 2000, the early 2000s. I don't recall the exact year it took place. The commission was, uh, that report came out in 2006. And there, there's no doubt being a bunch more before that. Like, yeah, some stuff is going to have to happen in camera, but you know, this is not the first time as a government we've ever encountered the pro problem, and it's certainly not the first time you know us or a peer country has run into this problem. And it's generally a solved problem, and I think uh, the governor, the former governor general, is maybe making a little too much out of the fact that this has classified materials involved. Yeah, I don't think he says, and he says a couple times in this report, I should note that he went into this process thinking a public inquiry would be necessary, and it, he kind of changed his mind through it. Uh, the other reason he cites is that it would be more timely and effective to just finish the work he's already doing, uh, rather than relaunching everything, which would be contrary to the public interest. Like, a public inquiry is not a fast process. And if it is, it's probably not a robust process. Well, I think it's worth thinking it's like what the actual public interest here is, because there's a couple at play. There's the how do you actually solve the problem and get things working? And then there's the how do you restore 
public trust in the integrity of Canadian elections on that. And okay, maybe they would ultimately come to the same set of recommendations that that deals with problem one, but problem number two, there is no amount of work David Johnstone is going to be able to do that will solve that because the, the fundamental political problem here is the fact that there is a perception of a conflict of interest here due to the uh, closeness between the former governor general and the current prime minister on this. And like, this is not something that can be solved with any amount of due diligence and hard work looking over classified materials, holding public meetings or anything. This is a, it's a personnel problem. And until the personnel issue is addressed on it, it's going to continue to dodge um everything that comes out of it and taint everything in the p public's perception on this and um i mean he, the, the former governor general was just frankly i think uh out of touch with how he handled these concerns he should never have accepted the post and uh i mean the main reason everyone thought he was going to recommend a public inquiry was just because it needed to get handed off to someone else and him choosing to plow ahead feels more like a, an act of vanity on his part and uh, him kind of laboring under the perception that, you know, he alone is of such eminence that uh, he's the only person in Canada for the job to carry on. Um, and that's that's just not uh, going to do it because, you know, the person you have to uh, convince that this is all good and above board isn't the... Uh, you know, a, a liberal staffer living in, living in Ottawa or a liberal-friendly pundit in Toronto. It's the, uh, it's the people who vote for the other party. And, you know, they may not like the outcome, but they at least have to feel that no matter what the process was, it was uh, the whole thing was above board and there was nothing hanky about any of it. And that's, you know, as honorable and... Uh, as much integrity as the man may have. Like, at this point, that ship is sailed and there's no returning on that at all. I'm... Like, fine... I'm not as convinced that that... Like, like th there are 40 million Canadians. Is it... Was it really that hard to find someone who didn't uh, know the Trudeau family when Justin Trudeau was growing up? Didn't... Yeah. Uh, among the people who are uh, preeminent enough to take such a role, it might actually be but that like, hard. Yeah. Like, or, or involved with the here's, no, here's the actual thing. Like this, this line that I hear is like it's Pierre Polyev's favorite at this point. Doesn't make and like, I'm not convinced that it is actually resonating outside of you know him and so the people who aren't. You know, or like almost like anti-liberal. So here's the problem: by is core. like th this is a like faith in the institutions of the country, faith in the integrity of the well, election. No, my point so, is like Pierre Polyev is going to ship can any process because he doesn't care. Yeah, but like okay, let's picture a scenario where in a couple years' time there's an election and the conservatives are say one seat short of where they need to be on this, um, and. If the only thing that has happened on all of this is 
we get a second David Johnson report that you know a third of the country or more doesn't really view as a legitimate conflict of interest free undertaking like that is a recipe for the integrity of the net selection and to be called into question like that is a very big risk to take just to have David Johnston keep on doing his job the man gets paid $150,000 a year for being a former governor general. Like he can just sail off into retirement. He does not need to do this. And it is kind of crazy that like nobody has taken him aside and be like, we really need to just like send this off to someone else. Please. I mean, that's on the liberals to ultimately decide, but like fundamentally I see the danger of where the conservative party and the movement writ large in this country has gone is they've gone down the like convoy rabbit hole the same stuff that you see take over in the states where they are eager to discredit any thing that undermines their partisan advantage so sure it could go to a public inquiry but i'm almost willing to bet they would find some reason to discredit that as well and to hate on that and be like oh they appointed this justice who was connected to so and so and you're like, at some point, we do need to find a way on. Like, I'm not convinced David Johnston is the best to lead this forward. I'm also not convinced there is another route well, out. Like, like, I'm I mean, kind I don't of think agnostic the, on the, the whole thing. The standard should not be, can you find a person that, like, even the craziest person out there won't criticize? It's like, will this convince, you know, the too much? Okay, Pierre Polyev is like, he's a ski buddy of Trudeau. And it's like, no, he was on the board of the Trudeau Foundation I mean, Briefly. they there was at least they did go skiing together at least at one point uh the the two families and like the the point is if you're arguing the minutiae on that like you've already lost because the problem is with conflict it's a conflict of interest and the standard isn't can, you know can you like figure out in the minutiae way this doesn't technically cross some guideline it is is there a perception of a conflict like that's really what matters here and i mean i think unequivocally based on everything we've seen said about this since the man was appointed to lead this process like that box has been checked and there's no unchecking it even if you pull in a retired supreme court justice to to give you the thumbs up which you know hey canadian politics drinking game we've uh got the uh, retired supreme court justice making an appearance on it. Hey, not all of them are doing fancy things like defending uh, Javid Johnston's integrity. Some are uh, suing over social housing projects in Oh, I, I missed that one. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, like... A Supreme Court justice is involved in the Kitsilano Coalition lawsuit. Of course it is. Because it's amazing. We really need just need to have like a... <laughs> Like, they have a decent pension. They should just, like, go off into the sunset. Like, it's honestly become a running joke, and that is not good for the long-term integrity of such an important institution. Uh, nor do we want yeah, the governor general uh, to turn into that as well, which, like, you know, if we keep doing this, that that may also happen. Um, yeah. Uh, Justice Michelle Bastarache is with them. Uh, yeah, like we used to not let judges vote. I'm not saying we should bring that back, but there was a reason. We we could still let them vote, just don't let them have jobs after being on the Supreme Court of Canada. Yeah, like just 
a whole bunch of these positions that come with good pensions, that, that should be the rule on this, that you just, if you want that pension, like you just go off into retirement and enjoy that because yeah, the, the more you get dragged back into basically a, um, you know, open, you know, spray glass in case of legitimacy emergency, the, the more it's just going to damage things in the long run. Um, anyway, on the short of it, they really should find someone else um, to head up the net stage because it's not, no matter what gets hammered out between now and October, there is not, there is enough people who aren't going to see the process as legitimate because of who is running it that any effort that goes into it is at best a waste and at worst is planting the seeds of some future problem coming down the road and it should not be that hard to find some like appeals court judge that you know has never uh had any interact never had any like social vacation time with a prime minister or never been involved in the trudeau foundation just find one of them give them the right get them the right security clearances and let them do their job using the uh, precedent from the O'Connor inquiry on how to run those things. You you think Canada is so much bigger than it is? There's Scott. 40 million people, and like I, I get the universe of judges yeah, is smaller. But most but like, of them are not. Seriously, can they not find one that wasn't involved in the Trudeau Foundation at one point? Probably not. What's Mark and Adon up to these so days? As far as I, as far as I can tell, uh, from uh, subsequent. Ro- Reporting, Trudeau has said he's not going to quote overrule David Johnston's report, uh, recommendations, so he is not eager to call a public inquiry at this stage. I guess we'll be continuing to play out this saga through public hearings that won't be compelled or necessarily under oath, even. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we have uh, from now to October to look forward to, and uh, or whenever the. Uh, the next round of stuff that uh, gets leaked is going to be. Uh, incidentally, I am. I think there's a good chance the reason it's been like months and nobody's found the leaker is apparently nobody tracks who receives this stuff. So like, it could just like be anyone in any of these departments because nobody knows who's actually seen this material. What a way to run a country. You want to just end the show there? <laughs> yeah, that's as good a spot as any. Jesus. And that has been Playcoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playcoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playcoast is a production of Legend Boot Media and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>